Hi, everyone. Welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right, well, welcome to the first episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Amin Kianku'i. In this first episode, I speak with Dr. James Cox. We cover a lot of different topics. We start with a conversation about atrial fibrillation mechanisms with a focus on reentry circuits. We then go on to talk about the fundamentals of the Cox May surgery. We have a nice discussion about the myth of pacemaker implantation. And then we also get into left atrial appendage management in the Laos 3 study. We finish our conversation with a discussion about current practice guidelines and current practice patterns. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. James Cox. So hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I feel pretty darn lucky to open this podcast with our first guest today. So I imagine everybody who's listening knows who he is. But for those listeners who don't, our guest today and his colleagues at Duke University and Washington University in the late 80s and 90s really paved the path for our understanding of both the mechanism atrial fibrillation as well as the treatment. And I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that they really created the modern fields of electrophysiology and arrhythmia surgery. Our guest today hails from Fair Oaks, Arkansas. He attended the University of Mississippi for undergraduate. And then lucky for us, when tasked with the choice of deciding between medical school at the University of Tennessee or playing professional baseball for the Dodgers, he chose medical school. So he trained at Duke under Dr. Sabiston for both his general surgery and his cardiac training. And since that time, he's really been at the forefront of atrial fibrillation management and became the youngest president ever of the AATS, being the 81st AATS president. He was chair of surgery at Georgetown University, and now he is a professor of surgery at the Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. And it is such an honor to have you on the podcast Dr. James Cox. Well, thank you very much, Armin. And I'm uh, always glad to see you and interact with you. And I appreciate very much the invitation to be with you today. Well, thank you for joining us. Just to let the listeners little uh, pearl, I first met you back in 2018. We were both at an atrial fibrillation course and I was sitting at the bar and you just so happened to come up to the bar. And I was only a couple of years out of training at that point. And you just started talking to me and I was completely blown away. And it just spoke to just how gracious you've always been. What a great mentor you've always been for all of us in the atrial fibrillation arena, but especially myself. And I just wanted to thank you for that. And just to let the listeners know that you won't find a kinder, more gracious person out there than Dr. Cox. So again, thank you so much for for your time today. Well, those are very nice words and I appreciate them. I'm always more talkative when I'm in a bar. So uh, you probably had to listen to some of my stories. (laughs) They're some of the best, I have to say. I don't know if we can share them all here today, but they've been absolutely wonderful to listen to over the years. 
So without further delay, let's get into, if you will, the fundamentals of atrial fibrillation. Obviously, you are what many people say is the godfather of atrial fibrillation. So in your own terms, what is atrial fibrillation? Well, first of all, it's a misnomer. It's interesting that the condition was described based on what atrial fibrillation actually looks like. It looks like a bag of worms that are moving inside a sac. And that's where the, I don't know if it came, which ancient language it came from, Greek or Latin or whatever, but it was described as fibrillation because it looked like a bag of worms. So that tells us what it looks like, but it doesn't tell us anything about what's going on. And I always thought that after we sort of learned what was going on during these AFib episodes, I've always thought that it would have been much more helpful if we could label it as atrial macro reentry rather than atrial fibrillation, because then I think everybody would understand what we're talking about, because that's basically what's going on is uh, multiple simultaneous macro reentry circuits in either or both atria. And that's why it looks like it does. As you probably know, it was originally called auricular fibrillation, but we all settled on atrial fibrillation. But I've always thought atrial macro reentry would be a better name for it. And so what is macro reentry? We've learned from you over the years that there's these kind of two basic mechanisms of atrial fibrillation. So what is macro reentry for the listeners? Well, it's often described in ways that I don't particularly agree with, but the way I learned it from my electrophysiologic mentors was that there are basically two types of arrhythmias. One type of arrhythmia is caused by automaticity. The automaticity you can think of as an abnormality and primarily in the sodium potassium pump of a single cell, which becomes irritable, loses some of its cellular integrity and spontaneously fires, spontaneously discharges. So you have a very localized focal site that's generating an abnormal beat. And that if you map it, it looks like you've dropped a pebble in a pond because the activation waves spread radially out from that one spot. So that's an automatic focus. The other type of arrhythmia mechanism is reentry, first described in, I think, 1916 by, maybe 1913 by G.R. Mines, a Canadian physiologist. And a reentry is subdivided into micro reentry and macro reentry. Now, the way it was originally described, micro reentry involved not one cell, but maybe several cells, but all in a localized area, say an area of myocardial ischemia in the ventricle, localized in a small area. But because it's localized in a small area, there are certain exit sites where it can go out, you know, to the rest of the heart. And if you map those patients, the micro, unless you do very high density mapping, if you globally map those patients, it also looks like a spot because just a few cells don't take up much space. So if you map an automatic arrhythmia, an automatic tachycardia, say in the atrium, and a micro reentrant tachycardia in the atrium, they look the same. And there's electrophysiologic ways of determining the difference by programmed electrical simulation, but from an interventional standpoint, it doesn't matter because if it's an automatic focus, you find it, you ablate it. If it's a micro reentrant focus, you find it and you ablate it. The other subdivision of reentry is macro reentry. And macro reentry is 
it requires a large area of the atrium in this case to sustain a re-entrant circuit long enough that it can come back, double back on itself, and then continue to go around and around. And that is dependent on the velocity of conduction. It's dependent on refractory period, which is like a tail following that lead edge of depolarization, and what's called an excitable gap between the two. And as long as there's an excitable gap, between the front of the depolarization wave and the tail of the repolarization wave, you've got an excitable gap of tissue there. It can go on indefinitely. That's macro reentry. Now, if you read the literature, unfortunately, it's confusing because a lot of electrophysiologists refer to small macro reentry circuits as micro reentry, even though, let's say, they're two centimeters in diameter, the circuit is two centimeters in diameter. It's often called micro reentry. It's not micro reentry. It's a small version of macro reentry. And most macro reentry circuits are big. And that's the reason that if we can put lesions close enough together that these things can't form, then you should be able to make the atrium so that it can't fibrillate. The fact that the maze procedure, for example, actually works is because we can put the lesions four or five centimeters apart from one another. And they will preclude the ability to develop those large macro reentrant circuits. And if you can't develop large macro reentrant circuits, you can't. The confusion, I think, that's been introduced into the electrophysiologic mechanisms of atrial fibrillation stems solely from the point of view that smaller macro reentrant circuits are the major drivers. There's no question that in some patients that's true. I think there's no question that it may be in some cases, even micro reentry may in some cases drive it. Very rare. The vast majority of patients who have atrial fibrillation have large macro reentrant circuits. Otherwise, for one thing, the maze procedure wouldn't work at all. But also, finding of micro reentry, what they call micro reentry, which is small macro reentrant circuits, doesn't mean that it's causal, doesn't mean that it's necessarily driving the atrial fibrillation. I think in most cases, if you make the, if you assume the correct electrophysiology, which is large macro reentrant circuits, and you base your intervention on that assumption or what is in fact knowledge, it'd be very successful. But I, I do think that it's confusing to try to differentiate between what we have one point in time called rotors. There's one other thing that's worth mentioning. There are a lot of different ways to map the atrium. A lot of surgeons don't understand this, particularly in, I think, electrophysiologists for the large part. But the way that atrium and ventricle have always been mapped is using activation time sequence maps, activation time maps. So 200 milliseconds of wave fronts here, and at 400 milliseconds it's here, and at 600 milliseconds it's here. So you can see the wave front moving across. Several years ago, there was another type of mapping uh, developed that was based on the voltage of the impulses of the activation complexes at each multiple individual points. Sometimes they're low, sometimes they're not. And it's affected by whether the wavefront is moving towards you or away from you. It's like a Doppler effect in, in sound. So you get nothing and then you get a blip. And if that blip is big or small and so on and so forth, you can use the voltage to determine, to create a map. And those maps show you, for the most part, what the activation time maps do, because they show you which direction away front's going and so on and so forth. And there are a lot of great uses for voltage maps. 
But the question arose very early, how do we illustrate or demonstrate voltage maps on the atrium as opposed to how we illustrate activation time maps? You do it the same way. You just have to switch the colors around. And actually, John Boino, my mentor, is the person who first developed what we called at that time potential distribution mapping, which has since been called voltage mapping. And there are, as I said, there are some advantages, but there's some disadvantages. For example, with a voltage map, you will never see a reentrant circuit. It's incapable of showing your reentrant circuit. All reentrant circuits are based on activation time maps. And that's what's really going on in terms of where the electricity is going. Voltage maps are very good for determining precise origins of arrhythmias when you don't have an electrode right on that spot. For example, the middle of the septum, ventricular septum. If you have electrodes on both sides of the ventricular septum and you're doing activation maps and the earliest area, site of origin of that DTAC is in the middle of the septum, then you won't be able to truly identify it with an activation map on both sides of the septum. But you do a voltage map and it'll show you exactly where it's coming from. There are a lot of advantages to voltage mapping, but there are also some disadvantages because you miss a lot of information. And when you look at a paper, be sure the first thing you do is you look at it and see, is that an activation map? Is that an activation time map? Or is that a voltage map? Because if it's a voltage map, you won't ever see re-entry. So there are a lot of nuances to mapping. Right. And maybe one of the macro view, if you will, we're talking about macro re-entry circuits. As surgeons, we don't rarely map in the operating room at all. Yet our colleagues in the cath lab, the EPs, they're mapping constantly. So can you talk about how we as surgeons treat atrial fibrillation versus how EPs typically treat atrial fibrillation? Absolutely. That's a really great question because first of all, it's a misnomer to think that they're mapping atrial fibrillation. If you're going in to do a pulmonary vein isolation, they always have maps, but do you need to have a map to do a pulmonary vein isolation with a catheter? No. That's an anatomic operation where the pulmonary veins are and you know where to put the lesions around them. And so you can isolate the pulmonary veins with a catheter with or without mapping. What the mapping is used for is primarily to determine after you've ablated, created your ablation lines, whether or not they're uh, contiguous with no gaps and transmural. So the maps are helpful in that regard. We can discuss how helpful intraoperative mapping is, I mean, testing is, but they're not going in and mapping atrial fibrillation and then saying, okay, we're going to do this operation for what we found on this map, like you would if you're doing WPW syndrome or AV node reentry or something like that. So the same thing is true with, you don't need to do mapping. I mean, we used to do mapping in every single patient before and after surgery. And we realized that we don't need to map. We're going to go in and do this operation for this patient who has atrial fibrillation and we don't need mapping. So there are two interventional procedures. By intervention, I mean either with catheter ablation or surgery. There are two interventional procedures that are proven to be successful for the treatment of whatever type of atrial fibrillation. Pulmonary vein isolation, that's an anatomically based operation, not map-guided, anatomically based operation. And the maze procedure, that's an anatomically based operation. So those are the only two things that we know work. PVI works for paroxysmal atrial fib. Maze procedure works for everything. But 
not, they don't require interoperative mapping. Now, the mapping people don't like to hear that, but that's absolutely correct. It raises the issue of the value of intraoperative testing because cardiologists, electrophysiologists commonly tell the surgeons, well, we, we do the mapping and we check before and after and everything. So we know what we've done. And you go in and do an operation, you don't even check for it afterwards. There is a modicum of truth in that most people don't test, but some people don't. The problem is that if you do a lesion with a knife, you got one part of the atrium here, one part of the atrium here, that's a complete lesion. You don't have to worry about it. But if you're doing it with cryo or radio, or radio frequency in surgery or with radio frequency or PFA or anything else and catheter ablation, you're not holding, you're not separating, always separating the atrium. It's not always complete lesion. And the reason is that you'll have an area of dead tissue and then surrounding that an area of viable tissue that's been damaged enough that it can't conduct electrical activity, just like the dead tissue won't. So you do this procedure, you do the intraoperative testing, and it's absolutely perfect. And then over the next few weeks, the viable areas can heal and leave gaps between those lesions, and then your procedure fails. So the only real value of, of testing either in an EP lab or in surgery after you've completed the procedure is to document that you've done the best you can at this point in time. In other words, there is no residual conduction across any of your lesions. Then you can stop. It doesn't mean that's going to be true later on, but it's certainly better than if you're leaving a gap and you haven't completed the procedure. That's the only value of it. Well, that makes sense. And just, I want to summarize for the listener. So within this context, you had mentioned cutting and sewing the atria. And just for the listeners to know, the original atrial fibrillation surgery that Dr. Cox devised was actually called the cut and sew maze. And now we're at a point where we use energy sources like cryo, like radio frequency, and we've almost created this new situation, just which you had stated, which is we use these energy sources. They have an area where they create a electrical barrier, a lesion at the time of testing during the surgery may or may not be complete. At least we know that. And then down the future, it ultimately reveals itself, whether it's in that blinking period, 90 days, three months we talk about. But that was almost a problem we created ourselves, correct? Because back in the cut and sew period, like you said, you knew you were dividing the tissue with the knife. Is that a fair kind of summary of that? Yeah, that's a very good summary of it and it illustrates your depth of knowledge. The fact of the matter is that of the first about 250 maze procedures, excuse me, we did it with the cut and sew technique. What a lot of people don't appreciate is there were four cryo lesions in the cut and sew maze. And why did we put those cryolesions in? Because even with a knife, you can't be absolutely certain that you've divided every last little fiber when you get down close to the tricuspid or mitral valve annulus. The original maze one procedure, if you will, cut and sew, had one lesion that went to the mitral valve annulus and two lesions that went to the tricuspid valve annulus and one lesion in the coronary sinus, all of which had to the end of them, we would put cryo just in case there were some remaining fibers that you can't, couldn't see. And we learned to do that because of all the experience of the WPW operation. If you leave one fiber the size of a hair, it won't work. You cannot leave any fibers intact. 
So that was carried over into other types of procedures. Cryosurgery, well, I should mention that the maze one is the first one we developed cut and sew. We had some problems with it. We rearranged the lesions slightly into the maze two. It was almost impossible to do technically. It was very difficult. So we moved them a little bit more into the maze three. But all three of those were rearrangements of slightly different lesion patterns, still adhering to the idea that they were close enough to, to interrupt the reentrant circuits, but positioned so that the sinus node could then activate both atria. In 1997, see, 1997, we completely stopped doing the cut and sew maze three procedure and started doing a purely cryosurgical maze three procedure. So a lot of people think that the term maze three and cut and sew are synonymous. They're not. Half of the over half of the maze three procedures that I personally did were actually minimally invasive cryo surgical procedure. All the lesions were created with linear cryoprobes. The procedure that NEVAD has done since that time, for the last almost 25 years now, have all been minimally invasive cryomaze three procedures, all done strictly with cryo. Why did we just switch from cut and sew to cryo? Because you can't do a cut and sew safely through a minimally invasive incision. Because when you take the left atrial appendage off, you always have a bleeder over there. And you can't get way over to the lateral part of the left atrium where there's always a little bleeder from the circumflex coronary to close that thing post-op if you're through a little small incision here. So before we ever started doing mentally invasive cryomaze procedures, I had to figure out a way that we could take care of the left atrial appendage without having that problem. We'll just do all the lesions of the cryo. If you know how to use a cryoprobe, then you can do it just as well. We should have named that the maze four. But it didn't change the lesion pattern, so we decided not to call it a maze four. As a matter of fact, my nurse specialist inadvertently referred to it as a maze four in a patient who had a recurrence once, and I got sued because he said, I came here for a maze three, and I got a maze four, according to your nurse. Well, we finally worked it out, but he was very upset about it. So we stayed away from the maze four. Now, in 2002, when Ralph's group, Ralph reported the maze four procedure in which he used a combination of radio frequency clamps, which had become available after 2000 or so, and cryo, and did what amounts to the exact same lesion pattern as the maze three. It's just a difference in the way you isolate the coronary veins and the posterior wall and called it a maze four. But the, it was a significant advance, much quicker, much easier. A lot more surgeons understood how to do it. Had a lot less to do on the inside after you'd done the outside part of it first. So it was a real advance forward. But I think it was an advance at the expense of creating some confusion because there was no change in the pattern, which is what we'd always base the Roman numeral system on. Lost in all that was something between the cut and sew maze three and the maze four was the minimally invasive cryo maze, which is the one it really has been used almost exclusively for the last 25 years by some surgeons. So it's a little bit confusing, but nevertheless, it's worked its way out, I think. Talking about confusion, I think one thing that confuses patients when they come to clinic or EPs or cardiologists or surgeons who don't perform atrial fibrillation is this confusion around pacemakers and the current 
Cox Maze 4 Lesion set. Can you educate us on the relationship between pacemakers and a Cox Maze surgery? Yeah, as you know, I wrote a published paper about two or three years ago about that because it's always been such a point of confusion for people. And to this day, I think most electrophysiologists think, well, you could do a maze procedure, but it really causes people to need pacemakers a lot. And it's absolutely not true. And that's the reason I wrote the paper. And I put all the reasons in there for having post-op patients. I guess the simplest way to say it is that nowadays, people have no idea what the status of the sinus node is. Let's talk about the sinus node first. Have no idea what the status of the sinus node is pre-op because they don't check it. They don't check sinus node recovery times and things like that to look at the function of the sinus node. So if you have a problem with it post-op in a patient who's been in atrial fibrillation for a long time, how do you know it wasn't already there? We know from previous publications, multiple publications, that two things that are true. One is atrial fibrillation itself, if you have it for a long time, damages the sinus node. Second thing is almost every medicine used to treat atrial fibrillation, and those patients who've had it for ages, for years, damages the sinus node. So we know that if you've got a patient who's been in atrial fibrillation, let's say for five years, and you go in and do a maze procedure on it, and you fix the atrial fib, he can't fibrillate anymore, doesn't fibrillate anymore, what does he have left? Well, the majority of the patients, the vast majority of the patients, sinus node takes over eventually and the things are okay. But in maybe 10 or 15%, we don't know the exact number, but it's a, that's an educated guess. It's a reasonable guess. 10 or 15% of people, their sinus node is not normal, whether or not you have atrial fib. So you get rid of the atrial fibrillation and now you're dependent on the sinus node and it's sick. So you have a sick sinus. So you've unmasked a sick sinus syndrome. That's one reason for having requiring pacemakers. What that means is that especially in long-standing persistent AF, the more of those patients you cure of atrial fibrillation, the more pacemakers you're going to have to put in. And it's not because of the operation. It's because of the physiology of the atrial fibrillation. A counter-confirmation of that is that when we were first getting into this business 30-some years ago, we had a mixture of paroxysmal patients and non-paroxysmal patients. It was about 60-40. And in the paroxysmal patients, we did test their sinus node function in every patient pre-op. So we knew what the status of their sinus node was. And in those paroxysmal AFib patients, about 5% of them had abnormal sinus nodes. And so we would tell them, now, we'll get rid of your atrial fib, but you're going to have to have a pacemaker. And they'd say, fine. They'd say, because your heart's own pacemaker is not healthy. So you're going to have to have a pacemaker. Around 115 patients were found to have absolutely normal sinus node function pre-op, okay, in the paroxysmal patients. Not one of those patients had to have a pacemaker. This was after a full-blown cut-and-sew maze procedure on cardiopulmonary bypass. Not one of them. So if the operation itself caused damage to the sinus node, some of those patients would have had to have a pacemaker, and none of them did. So it's largely dependent on what the underlying status of the sinus node is, for one thing. But if you look at most of the papers, the biggest indication for putting pacemakers in is not sinus node dysfunction. It's AV node dysfunction, AV node his bundle dysfunction and so on, heart block and so on. It's as if the maze procedure creates heart block. If you look at that 
famous study from 2015 in the journal by the CTS Net Group. They just absolutely, that's what caused their high incidence of 20% or something incidents, some level of heart block following the maze procedure. Well, not a single one of those patients in that study had a lesion in the atrial septum. What they were trying to do unsuccessfully, by the way, was to create a maze forward procedure. They called it the biatrial maze procedure, but it wasn't a true maze forward procedure because a lot of their lesions were done. It was some of the lesions weren't done. For example, it's not a single coronary sinus ablated and so on. And they use unipolar devices, which are practically worthless for doing these types of procedures. And 44% of the lesions on the left atrium were unipolar. And all the lesions on the right side were unipolar. They allowed you to combine the three lesions in the right atrium of the maze procedure with a CTI lesion. That isolates the lower third of the right right atrium and wipes out your sinus bradycardia area. So there are lots of things wrong with that study. But it's anatomically impossible to damage the the AV node hispondyl complex without a lesion in the atrial septum. That's where the thing's located. So how in the world can your incisions, I asked one of the junior authors on the paper who presented on that once several years ago, I said, tell me which lesions of the maze 4 procedure in that study you think is the one that damaged the SA node and caused you to have heart block. And he said, well, I think it was probably the one down to the mitral valve. I said, well, the lesion of the mitral valve is about five centimeters, four or five centimeters from where the AV node is located. How did it do that? Well, obviously, they have an answer because it's not what caused it. So the problem with, the, I think probably the most common reason that people put pacemakers in after the maze procedure is the following. You can't do a maze procedure without tugging some on the atrium, okay, especially if it's through a media instrument. Maze three, maze four, radio frequency, cryo, knife, doesn't make any difference. Any kind of trauma to the sinus node causes a spontaneous firing rate to drop. So let's say it's pre-op at 72 normal. This is a normal sinus node. 72 is normal. And after surgery with cardiac plegia and the torque and pulling, tugging and so on, it'll drop down, let's say, to 50. Okay. Doug Zipes, famous electrophysiologist, showed many years ago that even with incisions as simple as the WPW incision on the left for left free wall pathways, almost any incisions that you put that are of any significance that you put in the left atrium interrupts the vagal input into the AV node. Now, what does the vagal input to the AV node do? It suppresses the AV node's spontaneous rate, among other things, slows conduction through it, and so on. If you interrupt those vagus nerves and release that suppression, the spontaneous firing rate of the AV node does what? Goes up. So now you've got a post-op patient as a combination, absolute combination, of a decreased sinus rate and increased spontaneous firing rate. So the AV node takes over, that's a junctional rhythm. That's why you see so much junctional rhythm in patients after a maze procedure. Well, in the old days, we just keep them around until we left wires on, so we knew the atrium's working fine, and we'd check anti-grade and retrograde conduction. We knew that if you just waited a while, it would settle back down, and then you could send the patients home. But that might be two weeks later. Can't do that anymore because... The cost, probably economic issues and so on. And patients don't want to stay in the hospital that long. And the hospital administrators surely don't want them to stay in that long. And so you're pushed to get them out. And a lot of surgeons, maybe rightfully so, 
very hesitant to send patients home in a junctional rhythm. So what do you do? Put a pacemaker in. Now you bring those patients back a few months later, and almost none of them need that pacemaker. If that's the reason it was put in. But I think that's where most of them get put in. So what do you think is what we would call the range of pacemaker placements in patients who are going to the operating room for AFib surgery? I think it depends on what type of AFib the patient has and what type of operation you do. If you do maze procedures on all of them, then you can expect at least at one year, well over 90% success rate. And depending on which paper you read, it may last 15 years. So you can expect a very high success rate of getting rid of the atrial fibrillation. That in and of itself is going to give you a higher pacemaker rate. I had a very high pacemaker rate with when I started all this stuff. It was higher than anybody. But I think it was because on the very first procedure, I dissected everything away from the back of the heart so I could be sure I could see everything. And I think that extensive extra pericardial, uh, extra cardiac dissection probably also impacts it. But an acceptable rate, well, I can tell you what the rates are in the hands of the best surgeons. Neve's rate is about 5%. We just looked up Patrick's rate, Patrick McCarthy's rate at Northwestern, 3%, 3%. Ralph's similar, I, I think. And I may have misspoken by saying the best surgeon was obviously at least the most experienced surgeons. And so I think that it depends on who's doing the operation and what how the operation's done. I mean, the devil's in the details. And so I think that it's not necessary that you get 10%. I mean, let's say we were unmasking 10% and the longstanding persistent AF. Well, how many of your patients had longstanding persistent AF? All right, well, let's say you just look at the longstanding persistent AF and your instance of pacemaker implantation is 5%. Then I'd say, okay, we're unmasking 5%, not 10%. So it depends on your mixture of patients on what's acceptable. But I can tell you that in the New England Journal article I mentioned, the rate was, I think, 21%. That's not acceptable. Nobody should ever have 21% pacemaker implantation. It's not always the surgery. And sometimes patients and the surgeon reluctance to send patients home in, in junctional rhythm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Just for the the listeners out there, let's say somebody who's listening, they just have atrial fibrillation and they're just looking for more information. They should essentially be hearing from their surgeon that, hey, look, the maze procedure in and of itself, the procedure I'm going to provide you to try to get rid of your atrial fibrillation in and of itself does not cause atrial fibrillation, but your sinus node may be sick, whereby you may need a pacemaker that rate is probably somewhere in the 5% range, depending on how long you've had your atrial fibrillation, what medications you've been on, and other factors like that. Yes, I think that's a very nice summary of what I think you should tell them. And the I was going to say one other thing that slipped my mind in that regard. But yeah, I think it's important that people understand that the more atrial fibrillation you cure, higher your rate's going to be. I've always looked at, I know what I was going to say, I've always looked at atrial fibrillation as being an escape rhythm because so much of it occurs at four or five o'clock in the morning when you're normally in your deepest stages of sleep. Heart rate is absolute slowest. It gets slower and slower. And now it's not fast enough to perfuse the organs as it should. So what does the heart do? How does the body respond to that? I need to speed up heart rate. So I'll just atrium stretches a lot. Fibrillates, now your heart rate's down 100 and you're fine. 
you go into atrial fib. So you're actually in better shape in that situation than to have a heart rate of 30. Now, there, there are a lot of other factors that impact that in terms of heart function and age and so forth and so on. But it's amazing, always been amazing to me that so much of the atrial fibrillation starts for the first time, 4 a.m., 4 a.m. And I think it's an escape rhythm. And so if you have a sinus node that needs an escape rhythm and you take that escape rhythm away, you're going to need to put a pacemaker in. Right. It's just that simple. Right. So we've talked a lot about ablation for atrial fibrillation, and you had mentioned earlier, just briefly, the left atrial appendage. Can we talk about that a little bit more, especially in light of the, the Laos 3 trial and your thoughts on that and just the left atrial appendage management in general in patients who have atrial fibrillation? Well, we've been waiting for years for Richard Whitlock and his <laughs> colleagues to <laughs> give us some data on that. <laughs> we invited him a couple of years in a row to talk about that, and he didn't tell us anything. So I told him, I said, I'm going to invite you back until you start telling us the <laughs> results. It's a great study, and I think an important study. Doesn't answer all the questions, as I think I've heard you point out in the past, as well as others. There's no question that closing left atrial appendage decreases the incidence of stroke. But those 75% of those people were still on anticoagulation. And that sort of muddies the water because anticoagulation decreases the incidence of stroke. So it always raises the question of if you've done a maze procedure and you cured the patients, so we'll use the word cured, understanding it's not accurate. We've cured the atrial fibrillation at least for the next several years, and we've amputated or closed the left atrial appendage. Uh, do those patients need to be have long-term anticoagulation? And we don't know the final answer to that. All we know is that we have a lot more observational evidence uh, than people think that the answer to the question is probably no. And that information first came from Damiano's report on patients that I did in St. Louis before he got there years ago. And he had a 15-year follow-up on those patients. And we actually wrote a paper in 1999 showing that of the patients who were referred to us for the maze procedure, they fell into several different categories. Some of them were, had, were on anticoagulation, some of them were not. Some of them had higher CHADS VAS scores, that time different scoring system with the same thing, CHADS VAS. So we knew exactly how many strokes those patients were likely to have over the next 10 or 12 years. And we reported on 12 years. And that group of patients, had they stayed exactly like they were before we did the maze procedure on them, that group of patients would have had, would have been predicted on the basis of the known information at that time in the medical literature, 68 strokes over the following 12 years and included everybody. We had one stroke in 12 years. When Ralph looked up all those patients and followed them out to 15 years, we'd still have that one stroke. Ralph then did a, another study in which he reported on 212 of his own patients that were done with the MACE-4 and followed them for 10 years. He had one stroke. Now, in my patients, 65% of them were not anticoagulated. In his study, 80% were not anticoagulated. One stroke, one stroke over 10 years, 15-year period pretty strong evidence that you don't need to anticoagulate people if they've had a maze procedure and had their atrial appendix closed. You don't need to anticoagulate them. Why would you not anticoagulate them? Well, anticoagulation, all anticoagulants have bleeding problems, and some of them bleed into the brain. So the question becomes, 
are they more likely to have a stroke off of anticoagulation, a thromboembolic stroke, or a hemorrhagic stroke on anticoagulation? I happen to believe, no data has looked at this yet, I happen to believe that they were li- there, it's more dangerous to anticoagulate those patients than it is to leave them unanticoagulated on the basis of cumulative 25 years experience. Now, the DOACs may, in fact, change all that because I think it, they certainly are superior, in my opinion, to, to warfarin. But again, that hasn't been answered. I think that it's very puzzling to me how we can get to this point in time in 2021 when people still question whether closure of the left atrial appendage will decrease the incidence of strokes. And you may know good friend of mine, a colleague, and I got into a little tit-for-tat about that with some comedic editorials a couple of three years ago. But it really seems to me to be an answered question. I think certainly that allows three strong evidence for it as well, although some of them are anticoagulated, and that muddies the waters. But I think that if you look at the gigantic number of patients and number of studies that have been done, over the years, that the obvious answer is that if you can close the left atrial appendage effectively, then you can greatly decrease the incidence of stroke associated with atrial fib. They may have strokes related to other things. They can still have hypertensive hemorrhagic strokes and things like that, atherosclerotic strokes, carotid artery strokes, so forth. But they shouldn't have strokes due to atrial fib. The one thing that seems like it's happening more and more nowadays is that patients with quote-unquote asymptomatic atrial fibrillation are undergoing endovascular procedures to have their left atrial appendage managed to prevent that stroke risk. Is there a population or a portion of that asymptomatic population that should have more than just their left atrial appendage managed? In other words, it seems like we're leaving their rhythm alone and just treating the appendage. Is there a portion that needs to be more aggressively treated? Well, I'm sure there probably is a portion of them that needs to be treated. But the issue in those patients is it relates to something I've said before. Atrial fibrillation, the arrhythmia, atrial fibrillation doesn't kill people. Strokes due to atrial fibrillation kill people. And so if you can eliminate those strokes by closing their left atrial appendage and taking that risk away, they're not going to die of atrial fibrillation. I mean, the only way atrial fibrillation itself can kill you is to induce, is to result in strokes in the left atrial appendage, that's one, or it can induce, it can cause attack cardia-induced cardiomyopathy and heart failure. And so it can kill you from that. But if you can control the rate, the ventricular rate response to atrial fibrillation, and close the left atrial appendage, they won't die of atrial fibrillation. What are they going to die of? Unless it either causes a stroke or it causes heart failure, it doesn't cause myocardial ischemia. I mean, it's if you have bad coronary disease and you get angina every time you go into atrial fib, sure, it can do that secondarily. But it's a coronary disease that's a problem there. So I think it's entirely reasonable that there be a group of patients who would benefit far more just from closure of their left atrial appendage than from doing some big procedure. It's hard to justify doing an interventional procedure, in my opinion, of any type for atrial fibrillation, unless you're pretty sure that the patient's symptoms are related to the atrial fib. 
that's where it gets into a strange situation with doing mitral valve surgery. But you're already there. You spent 15 minutes, and now Pat Carthy's new modification of our cryosurgery thing, uh, you can do it literally. You can do it in 10 minutes and say 15. And so you're not going to increase the patient's operative risk. And getting rid of the atrial fib has been shown by multiple studies now, and it's a part of the guidelines that if you get rid of the atrial fib at the time you do the mitral valve surgery, you actually decrease the operative mortality rate, 30-day mortality rate. So there are plenty of reasons to do it in those circumstances. But in a patient who's walking around with undetected, asymptomatic atrial fibrillation, you get rid of their atrial appendix, they're going to be fine. I've often said that it's, I've, I've related, let's say you've had your atrial appendage occluded and you lead sort of a sedentary life to begin with, completely asymptomatic. You don't know at all that you're an atrial fib. As I said, you're fairly sedentary, aged, and so on. And you don't have a rate fast enough to induce a cardiomyopathy in the ventricles. Your atrium is gone. Tell me what the difference, and you're 80 years old, tell me the difference in that and an aging spot on the back of your hand. I mean, neither one of them is symptomatic. Neither one of them is causing any problem with anything. No palpitations, no cardiomyopathy, and no strokes. So it's, I mean, it's what happens to you when you get old and like aging spots on the back of your hand. So I think that the closure of the left atrial appendage is, I've said it before in my original paper on it, I said that it's, that if we did it and everybody who was, who could undergo it without any problems, that there's probably nothing else that we could do that would impact the mortality rate of patients in this country more than closing your atrial appendage. That's quite the statement. So what's really interesting within that statement too, is if you look at cardiac surgeons who have the opportunity to manage the left atrial appendage at the time of surgery. So when we're doing a coronary bypass or an AVR or even a mitral, according to the most recent data we have from the STS, unfortunately, it still only happens about 37% of the time. Most surgeons still are not managing that left atrial appendage. Why do you think that is? I mean, what do we need to do better to get surgeons on board with treating the left atrial appendage when they have this prime opportunity? Scientifically, those surgeons are doing the right thing because there are no data that show that if you routinely close the atrial appendage in everybody that you operate on just because it's there, the idea that if you can get your hands on the left atrial appendage, you close it. It makes sense, and I think it's probably right, but there is absolutely no study showing that's the case. So from a scientific standpoint, they're not obligated to do that. And also from a scientific standpoint, surgeons who do that practice are running a risk of doing something that we don't know about the side effects, the downside of it enough, function, neurohormonal changes, you know, so on and so forth. Those questions just haven't been answered yet. And so to do that routinely on every Patients say somebody does 400 coronaries a year and takes a left atrial appendage in every one of them, whether or not they have atrial fib, no data to support that. I think that's probably the right thing to do. And I've often said when I'm talk, giving talks to surgeons, by the way, if you any of you have to do an emergency coronary on me before I leave town, clip my left atrial appendage, okay? Because that bothers me to have one, but there's no data for that. Sure. And let me just clarify for the listeners, when I speak to that 37%, I'm talking about patients who go to the OR with a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, 
they're undergoing some other cardiac surgery already, whether it's an ABR or a cabbage or a mitral. And unfortunately, even in the setting of atrial fibrillation, those patients are only having their appendage managed 37% of the time. Yeah, well, that's not good practice. At the very least, they should have their left atrial appendage. And I think the data are very strong that if you're going to practice cardiac surgery at the optimal level in 2021, you need to treat their atrial fibrillation. I mean, everything that is available to us in the literature as cardiac surgeons will back that up. But if you still decide you don't want to do anything about the atrial fib, at the very least, you need to clip their atrial appendage, at the very least, because at least you can pretty much eliminate a likelihood that that patient's going to have a stroke due to the atrial fibrillation, which you've elected not to treat. There is an area of atrial fibrillation treatment, at least surgically, which seems to be growing, and that's this off-pump procedure is used in folks who have atrial fibrillation, and that's this hybrid, totally thoracoscopic or sub-xiphoid convergent. Can you give us your thoughts on what we nowadays consider this contemporary hybrid approach or off-pump? Yeah, well, I think it represents a, a significant advance in the treatment of atrial fibrillation in surgical patients, patients who failed catheter ablation and so on. And again, several places around the world, including the one that you're in with GAN, and you've published the most recent and papers and the largest series of papers on the effects of hybrid procedures. And I think it's generally generally accepted that in patients, particularly with left longstanding persistent atrial fibrillation, that is atrial fibrillation longer than a year. And even in patients with what's now being called late persistent atrial fibrillation, I guess that's more than six months. I don't know. But I would lump persistent in with it. Persistent and long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation, that's non-paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. So I think if you have non-paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, that hybrid procedures in which the cardiologists, the electrophysiologists, and the surgeons either jointly or in stage procedures combine the epicardial thoracoscopic surgery with the endocardial catheter ablation to treat patients with complex forms of atrial fibrillation. The real need for it is apparent because endocardial catheter ablation with the devices that are available now and have been available for the last 30 years, it's just suboptimal. I mean, it's not a good therapy. However, the Hamburg studies show that if you do multiple catheter ablations for longstanding persistent AF, multiple catheter ablations, that you get a five-year cure rate. And we'll talk about it as if it's cancer, which is what it is. A five-year cure rate of 45%. Now that says, I mean, if that were your surgical results, you'd be out of a job. But with a tip of a catheter in these very complex patients, I think that's remarkable because what it says is you can eliminate long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation successfully for five years with multiple catheter ablations only. And that's quite good. But it's not near, it's half, almost, it's just about half as good as open surgery, like a minimally invasive maze procedure that requires the heart-lung machine for an hour. People don't like the heart-lung machine for a lot of reasons, but I think it, that are misplaced. But be that as it may, you're either given the option of getting 45% of them, which is remarkable, with a catheter ablation, or 90% of them with a maze procedure. That's twice as good. Where the hybrid stand, I think, is just about midway between the two, 70 75%. And you don't have to put the patients on the heart-lung machine. And that's primarily because 
of the introduction and maturation of thoracoscopic surgery by the surgeons and the willingness of the electrophysiologist to admit this, I can't treat this by myself very well. And if I treat it, if I have the surgeon prep the atrium, so to speak, by creating some lesions, prep the atrium so it's no longer a complex arrhythmia. It's an arrhythmia that I can control by putting a couple of places here, touching up his lesions from the epicardium, and so on. And I think it makes infinite sense. And I think it fits in very nicely to the area between the two. You're not going to get, nor should you expect to get, the same results you would get with a bigger, bigger operation. But you can get very good results, and they're sure better than catheter ablation. So it fits sort of neatly in between the two. I think that it probably, I think it's extremely important part of cardiac surgery now. I think people like you and the other people like Lemire and Munaretta and Bisleri and Dunnington, who's your partner, and a lot of the people who've been doing these minimally invasive procedures, I'm sure I'll list somebody out. Bart Van Putten, for example, Yomaz, those people that the work you've done in the last 10 years is is exceptional and it's important. Will we be doing this 30 years from now? Probably not. We probably won't be doing the maze procedure 30 years from now either. But I said that 30 years ago as well. <laughs> but I think that that it serves its purpose now very nicely. I think that the conversion procedure, which is done through a sub-xiphoid approach, and some people are adding the left atrial appendage clip. And even some are trying to do it through the sub-xiphoid approach and having the cardiologist add a CTI lesion. I mean, that's that you know, instead of isolating the posterior wall, you're ablating it and then isolating the pulmonary vein. So you still got your box lesion around there. I mean, that's a good operation, I think. And I think that it's very easy for surgeons to learn. And I think it's effective. It's clearly the RCT showed it was 18 or 20% more effective than, than catheter ablation alone. So yeah, I think it's an important part of cardiac surgery, a contemporary cardiac surgery. I suspect that the electrophysiology companies and people who are in electrophysiology are going to develop much better tools for treating, for treating atrial fibrillation. And uh, I think that if I were worried about any segment of the profession going away, I'd worry about the mapping going away. And the mapping has been absolutely spectacular in, in its development over the last 30 or 40 years. It's just spectacular. I can't believe you can get such fantastic maps now that we used to put 250 electrodes on the, actually on and in the heart. And now you can do it with a, with a single catheter. It's absolutely perfect. Do you need it? I don't know. Right. When you think about the spectrum, the timeline, if you will, when you were doing dog experiments at Duke and at Wash U, and now we have a class one indication for the May surgery, it brought a little tear to my eye when when you suggested that maybe we won't be doing the maze procedure in, in 30 years. Hopefully we'll be doing something like that or I'll be out of a job. Learn how to use catheters. <laughs> <laughs> you can do a maze procedure with a catheter if you got the right tools. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, well, I somebody asked me recently, I don't remember exactly this scenario, but they asked me recently, just real recently, uh, where I thought the maze procedure was going to be 30 years from now. And I said, I really don't think you'll be doing maze procedures 30 years from now. But I said, if you'd asked me that question 30 years ago, I'd have told you the same thing. And I was wrong then, so I don't know. I think that you will be doing procedures that essentially mimic the maze procedure, but you may be able to do it with devices that are not, not surgical devices. I'll put it that way. 
I had a lot of hope for the promise of Hasegar's approach over the last few years, which, and a few others, an approach where you go in and basically with a catheter, you just go in and, and ablate, I go in and create a pulmonary vein isolation in a box. You know, there's a box lesion. Just let's just isolate all that as the cornerstone. That's the cornerstone for all these things. And then map and see if you have any drivers, which they call rotors, they're small micro reentry drivers that are elsewhere in the atrium. Now, the reason that I have always said that is highly unlikely to work is because we learned. 35 years ago, that you cannot map guide a fib surgery. Well, I thought maybe now you can. Maybe with these maps and somebody like Hasegar on one end of that catheter, maybe in fact you can do that. But it depends on mapping today, identifying where those rotors are, ablating those rotors, stopping the AFib, and not having it come back next week, okay, or next year. And I think initially, I really, I thought if anybody can do this, that group can do it. Pierre Jason, those with Malise Cini, and those people are absolutely superb. And if anybody can do it, they can do it. And it's finally, it's faded away now because you have all, you've had these beautiful papers coming out looking at different ways of overlaying certain findings in the atrium and say that's where it is. So when the cardio insight system, body surface mapping came along and you may know Merrick Ehrlich from the University of Vienna is over with uh, Laffer and that group. They've done a lot of cardio, uh, body surface mapping. And Nevad and I were talking with er- Merrick Ehrlich at one of our meetings here in Chicago uh, a year or so ago. And I said, you know what I'd like to see? I said, since that's a totally non-invasive procedure, I'd love to see you do a body surface map on a patient and longstanding persistent AF. Do it, record it, create the maps and everything. Let them go home, bring them back in a month or two weeks or whatever, and do it again. Do it again. Because you've located, you've localized right. where those maps are, where those rotors are. And if you had operated on that patient that day, you would have ablated those three spots. So let's come back a week from now, not having done anything, or ended up being 10 days, 10 days from now, not having intervened in any way, and just remap the patient and see if those rotors are still in the same place or if they've moved. They just completed that study. And had the papers summarily turned down by a certain journal because you could tell the reviewers had no idea what we were trying to do. What the paper showed is that in six of the 10, really in all of them, but dramatically in six out of the 10 patients, day one map, day 10 map, entirely different. That means if you're trying to base your ablative procedure on what you're finding in a, on a map at the time you're doing that procedure, and those are the only places you're going to ablate where you see rotors, you know, that day, it's just going to fail. And that's the reason that we couldn't do it years ago with surgery. You could find those things and ablate them and they just show up somewhere else. And I think that's an extremely important study. Right now, nobody seems to want to uh, see it. But that, to me, confirms what we found years ago is that we map-guided surgery for every arrhythmia there is. So we assumed we could do that for atrial fibrillation, and you can't. It's not the same thing. It's a dynamic thing. It changes. If these rotors change, then you're hooked. It's the only thing that bothers me about the approach that the people in Maastricht and Brussels have used, where they do that very thing. They do the hybrid procedures, and they base their lesion pattern 
on the findings that they do the mapping. That's MAP-guided AFib surgery. And, you know, the results, I have to say, that are reported are much better than I thought they would be. But I don't, I'm still skeptical they're going to hold up, but we'll see. Maybe that brings us to this idea that you were talking about, which is we may have some new tools in the future to do more things more robustly with a catheter, but ultimately the idea will be to create an anatomic ablation that's based on the COX-4 or if you will, the COX-3 maze lesion set that you discovered back in the 90s. Well, yes. In the large picture, I think that's basically it in a nutshell. However, one caveat, when you're doing surgery, you can't electively leave out lesions just to see what would happen. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of people have left out lesions, not for different reasons, because I think these, this is all you need to do. We know what happens when you leave lesions out. The results go down. But you may be able to do a smaller set of lesions that would be a lot more amenable to catheter ablation and get by with it. In other words, your results at five years may be insignificantly different. So I don't envision, even with the right tools, doing a full-blown four lesions on the left, three lesions on the right, or whatever, set exactly like we do it surgically, like people who do them all the time would do them, three or four. But I do envision, say, a situation where you can do a pulmonary vein isolation as a box, including the posterior wall, maybe a lesion down to the mitral annulus, at the very least a CTI lesion on the right side, and a lesion out to the left atrial appendage and clip the left atrial appendage. Well, that might do it. And there are tools coming along that would allow you to do that just like that with a catheter. So I think it wouldn't be a purist form of a maze procedure, but it's the same principle. Right. We're going to put blocks in areas where we know these has a high propensity to have these macro-oriented circuits. And if they can't occur in these places, likely as not, they won't occur anywhere. Instead of getting 95% at one year, you have 90% at one year. And instead of having 88 or 90% at five years, you have you know 83 or 85% at five years. So I would expect that's where it's going. I guess only time will tell and hopefully... Both of us will be at the forefront of that and we'll be part of that process together. Well, I would like to think that, but I think I'm sort of leaving it in, in your generation's hands now. I think, I think you'll figure it out. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Cox. I mean, that was an absolutely fascinating conversation. I'm sure I could keep on asking you more questions, but maybe we can save that for another episode coming up. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. And again, thank you. Obviously, it goes without saying so much you've done for the field and all your mentorship over the years. Well, thank you very much, Armin, and I really enjoyed talking with you. And thanks again for your invitation to join you today. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this first episode of the All Things AFib podcast with Dr. James Cox. You can look for new content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and our YouTube channel, All Things AFib. And you can also find sneak previews of upcoming episodes through our Twitter feed at All Things AFib. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, 
You should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.